0: we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 12 this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. And you can follow along with me as we read uh, from the Scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, in the inheritance of the saints, in light. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word now. Father, we do thank You that You hear us when we pray. We thank You that we can come before You with confidence, knowing that You do indeed delight To answer the prayers of Your people. Not because we're worthy to have our prayers answered, but because Christ is seated at your right hand and His work is finished and His intercession for us is faithful and never failing. And so even as we pray now and ask for Your help as we consider the truths of Your Word, we do so mindful of the fact that our prayer ultimately comes to You only through Jesus Christ. And so for His sake, God, we ask that You would work among us. For His sake, we ask that You would grant us growth and understanding. For Jesus' sake, Father, help us to be faithful to the Scriptures. Help me to be faithful to the Scriptures, Father, and to speak and preach things that are accurate and true in accordance with the Bible. Help us, Father, to be built up in the truth today. Use this, God, as, as another, another instance of Your uh, faithfulness to do precisely what You've promised. You've told us that Your Word will not return to You void. Will You show us Your faithfulness today, God, by working among us, by Your Spirit, through Your Word, for the glory of Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen. Have you ever wondered if there is more to the Christian life than what we might call the everyday experience? Have you ever, even if only for a moment looked at your daily walk as a Christian, and thought to yourself, is this really it? Is this really it? If you observe American Christianity today, it would seem that many believers are in fact asking those questions. We've got books promising to unlock, quote, the deeper or higher Christian life. We've got conferences offering to quote, boost Christians to a new level of experience. We've even got podcasts, unending podcasts, delivering quote, fresh life content for you to live. Now I've got nothing against books or conferences or podcasts. I read books. I go to conferences. I listen to podcasts. So my point is not to gripe about those things per se. Rather, my Point is with the motivation that drives us to those kinds of things. If you listen closely, often what's driving folks is this assumption that there has to be more to Christianity than what I'm currently experiencing. There has to be more to the Christian life than what I currently know to be true. I mean, the Bible, church, prayer, love for one another, I understand all that, but still, that can't be all that there is. I want the fullness of the Christian life. And so, we end up asking ourselves, is this really it? If you've ever asked yourself that question, and I know that I've asked it of my own life, then you'll be encouraged to know that in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is concerned with answering precisely what you have asked. It seems the Colossian believers had begun to wonder to themselves, is this really it? They heard the Gospel from Epaphras and now it seems that they're asking, is this really it? And understandably so in their situation. They had false teachers claiming special insight into the wisdom of God. And these folks were positioning their teaching as the key to experiencing the fullness of spiritual life. Understand, friends, that over time, those kinds of claims begin to wear on you I mean, just be honest for a minute. Which sounds more exciting? Perseverance or the mysteries of God's wisdom? Which one would you pick? Faithfulness or the fullness of the divine? So you can understand the Colossians' difficulty. Which is why Paul writes this passage. He writes it in order to answer a question that many of us find familiar if we were honest. Is there actually more to the Christian life than the everyday And Paul's answer, perhaps surprisingly, comes in the form of a prayer. I'm I'm sure you noticed it when we read, having already thanked God for the Colossians in verses 3-8, to Paul now shifts to describe his prayer to God on their behalf. You see it there in verse 9. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. But here's the important piece for understanding the passage, friends. Paul's prayer is more than a formality. He's not simply following the customs of first century letters. No, this is a prayer that teaches. Or to say it another way, this is a prayer with some teeth. This is a prayer that fights specifically against the false teachers. This is a prayer that equips the Colossians with what they need to stand firm in the Christian faith. This is a prayer that encourages them in the everyday Christian life. And so, if we were to summarize... Paul's prayer, perhaps this would be a helpful starting place. Paul prays for the Colossians to have true spiritual knowledge so that they would then pursue true spiritual growth. Let me say that again. Paul prays for the Colossians to have true spiritual knowledge so that they would then pursue true spiritual growth. Those two themes, true spiritual knowledge and true spiritual growth, are the heart of this text. So, let's give our attention to each one in a little bit more detail. First of all, we need to consider Paul's presentation of true spiritual knowledge. Again, it's, verse, it's clear in verse 9 that prayer is Paul's focus at this point. Notice how he speaks of praying without ceasing. Regularly, faithfully, fervently, consistently. Paul prays for the Christians in the Colossian church. And by praying for these believers, Paul continues to direct them to God's work on their behalf. Please don't miss that point, friends. Paul's prayer is is a plea for God to work. His prayer is a plea for God to work in and through these believers. Remember, it was God's work for the Colossians that sparked Paul's thanksgiving in verses 3 and 4. And it's God's continued work that now prompts Paul to pray. So you can see the Apostle's point already, and it's an encouraging one. Believers don't need something new to unlock the Christian life. Instead, they need the same God who saved them through the Gospel to keep working for them. That's why Paul prays as he does. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Before we get to the growing part, we need to understand the content of Paul's request. It's the content of his prayer that leads to the growth So notice what Paul asks for in verse 9. He asks that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now that's a jam-packed prayer request. It's clear that the aim is knowledge of the divine will, but what exactly does Paul have in view? What is this knowledge of the divine will? Well, it helps if we break it down piece by piece So that we can get some clarity at the end. So to begin with, note the scope of this knowledge. Paul prays that they would be filled. Do you see it there? That they would be filled with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. If you read through the letter, it seems that the idea of fullness was a key element of the false teacher's agenda. They were obsessed with fullness. Perhaps they claimed that there were other truths than the Gospel, other truths along with the Gospel that brought a greater fullness to the Christian life. Whatever the specifics were, it's clear that the Colossian Christians were now struggling with whether or not they had everything they needed to live. Perhaps we don't have the fullness, they're thinking. So what does Paul do? Well, he turns the false teacher's language against them. He prays for God to fill the Colossians with the knowledge of His will. To be filled here is to have complete certainty. That's the idea. To have complete certainty. But the key is that Paul stresses this must come from God Himself. Notice that he asks God to do it. To be filled with knowledge of the divine will is not something we can attain on our own through human effort or tradition, and it's not something that can be found outside of the Gospel. Rather, to experience the fullness of knowledge, believers must look to God alone who can provide. The scope of it points us to God. But consider also the source of this knowledge. Notice that Paul says, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will happens in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see there at the last part of verse 9. To be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The key here is the word spiritual. Again, based on what we read in the letter, it seems that the false teachers were urging what we could call earthly prescriptions. They had certain rules and regulations you had to follow in order to know God. They taught ideas that clearly came from human traditions. If you read ahead in chapter 2, you'll get a sense for how man-centered, how earthly, the false teachers were. If you just peek ahead to chapter 2. So here in his prayer, Paul counters that by asking God to fill the Colossians by means of spiritual, that is not earthly, wisdom. Fill them with spiritual wisdom, that is not earthly. Now, we just kind of pause our exposition here for a second. Like the Colossians, we have some pretty skewed notions about what spiritual means. And this is true both inside and outside the church. We have some pretty skewed notions on spirituality. If you ask most people what it means to be spiritual, you'll likely hear something that sounds very mystical and very subjective. The thinking goes like this. The spiritual is not made up of the material world. So you can't know the spiritual through material things like your mind. You've got to transcend the material. You've got to get outside of your mind in order to truly know what is spiritual. And you can only do that by some sort of experience. That tends to be what people have in view whenever they hear the word spiritual. And that has honestly trickled down into the church even. Spiritual can't be, can't be material. Can't be something that I can do with my mind with my thinking. It's got to be something mystical. But that's emphatically not what Paul has in view here in verse 9 when he says spiritual wisdom. That's not what Paul has in view. By spiritual, Paul means that which comes from heaven, from the realm of God's presence, rather than what comes from earth, from the realm of humanity. Biblical spirituality then is concerned with heavenly truth About the triune God. And where else do we find this heavenly truth other than in what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures? That's what spiritual wisdom is for Paul. It's truth that comes from the heavenly realm of God's dwelling. How do we get there? We can't. We can't get there. We're dependent on God to tell us. So I just want you to hear me very clearly. To be a spiritual person is to be a Bible person. To be a spiritual person is to be a Bible person. So you can see what Paul's doing here in this prayer. The fullness of spiritual wisdom is not found outside of the Scriptures, but in the Scriptures. If believers want to be filled with all spiritual wisdom and all understanding, which by the way, who doesn't want that? I want all spiritual wisdom. If believers want that, then they should give themselves to knowing God through His Word. Knowing God through His Word. That's the source of the wisdom and knowledge that Paul prays for the Colossians to receive. It's heavenly. It comes from God. And that means it's found in His Word. Now, for the last piece that brings Paul's request Together. We've looked at the scope and the source of the knowledge. The last thing we need to see is the identity of this knowledge. Again, verse 9, look at verse 9. Paul asks that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God's will. God's will. Now, what Paul has in mind here is not God's direction for your life, which is how we typically think of God's will. That's not what Paul's thinking about. Paul has in mind something much more significant. How do you know that, Jeff? Because Paul tells us later in chapter 2. He defines for us what this knowledge is. And he defines the knowledge of God's will with nothing less than the Lord Jesus Himself. Chapter 2, verse 2, Christ is the knowledge of God's mystery. Chapter 2, verse 3, Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them in Jesus. So, what is the knowledge of God's will that Paul is praying for them to be filled with? To have complete certainty about? What is it? It's the revelation of God's work to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the full knowledge of God's will. It's the revelation of God to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the Colossians want to know the fullness of spiritual knowledge, if you want to know the fullness of spiritual knowledge, then look to the Gospel. Look to the Gospel. The very same Gospel that Epaphras preached to them. The very same Gospel that brought them to faith in Christ. The very same Gospel that even now is working in them and through them. That's the fullness of divine wisdom. You see, part of the Colossians problem was that their view of Christ was too low. Their view of the gospel was too small. Sure, Jesus was the Savior, but what else is out there? I mean, spirituality is a big thing, and Jesus is just one guy. What else is out there? And yeah, the gospel's good news, but what other insight can I find? You could say they had a very small gospel with a very little Christ. And that's why Paul prays as he does. He wants them to see that the fullness of God's will is found in Jesus Christ. He wants to expand their understanding of spiritual wisdom, taking it beyond merely earthly things and connecting it with the reality-defining gospel of Christ crucified. Friends, there is no greater depth of spiritual truth than Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for the salvation of sinners. There is no higher wisdom beyond the fact that the Son of God took on human flesh so that He continued to be fully God while at the same time also being fully man. There's no wisdom beyond that. There's no better provision than to know this Christ by faith. For in knowing Christ, we know God's power, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's presence, God's justice, and God's faithfulness. This is true spiritual knowledge, friends, to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Resurrected, reigning, and coming again. There is not another level of knowledge that will take us beyond the Gospel and unlock the deep things of God. The Gospel is the deep things of God. Christ is the fullness of wisdom and understanding. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm saying the same thing over and over. And so perhaps the question that we need to ask ourselves is this, is my view of Christ too low like the Colossians? Do I take the gospel too lightly as though there were something beyond the good news? Friends, sometimes an anemic spiritual life does say something about us my view of Christ too low? Do so I take the Gospel too lightly. Am I subtly thinking there has to be something beyond just Jesus crucified and resurrected? If so, then I would urge us to follow Paul's example here. This is important. If, you, if you're concluding, yes, my view of Christ is too low and I take the Gospel too lightly, well, this sounds horrible. What am I supposed to do? Do what Paul did. He prayed. He prayed and he asked God to work. Let's not miss that point, friends. Paul is praying here because what these believers need most is God's work on their behalf. Notice that he's not commanding them to do things. He's praying for God to work in them. So if your your experience of the Christian life these days resonates a bit with the Colossians and you find yourself thinking, is this really it? Then perhaps the best application is just to take Paul's example, take his prayer, and make it your own. Pray God's Word back to Him. Ask God to fill you with the knowledge of Christ. Ask Him to help you see that the fullness of spiritual wisdom is there in the Gospel. And then remember this. Remember this, that since He's already given you His Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give you all things? So pray and ask God to work. The second theme of Paul's prayer is really the application of this first point. We've just considered true spiritual knowledge, which in turn leads us to pursue true spiritual growth. That's the second theme of Paul's prayer. And it's the application of the first true spiritual growth. Verse 9 gave us the content of Paul's prayer that believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's the content. And then when we come to verse 10, Paul now gives us the purpose of his prayer. Notice again what he prays. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. That's the purpose. If you read through Paul's letters, you'll find this image of walking is Paul's preferred way to describe how we live the Christian life. So when Paul says to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, He means to live in a way that honors Jesus. In fact, the second clause there clarifies the first. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? It means to live in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus. A way that honors Him for who He is. So that's the purpose of Paul's prayer. The content is that they'd be filled. Why do they need to be filled? So that they'll walk worthy before God. Now, As we consider verse 10, we might be slightly uncomfortable with Paul's language of living in a way worthy of Christ. Aren't we unworthy before God? Isn't all of our righteousness only as filthy rags before the Lord? Aren't we fallen and depraved so that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation? What's all this talk about being worthy. Aren't we unworthy? Yes, those statements are true, which is why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Amen? Amen. But, here's what we need to recognize, friends. Even as the Bible affirms that we are unable to save ourselves, the Bible at the same time also calls us to aim for godliness that pleases the Heavenly Father. It is not Wrong for a Christian to want to please God. It is not a denial of the Gospel for believers to strive for lives that honor the Lord Jesus more and more. Now, it's a problem if we believe that pleasing God is what earns our status as God's children. It's a problem if we believe that we have to please God first before He will forgive us and justify us in His sight. That's a denial of the Gospel. But that's not at all what Paul has in mind in verse 10. Remember, he's already affirmed in verse 3 that it was God who saved them. Remember, he thanked God for their faith in Christ. He's already affirmed that it was God who saved them. And now, through that same Gospel, Paul urges these believers to aim to please God with their lives. Or think about 2 Corinthians 5. We make it our aim to please God in everything. He calls them to cultivate worthy lives before the Lord Jesus. To aim to please the Lord. Friends, that is not legalism or works righteousness. That is Gospel-rooted obedience. And it pleases God. It is a good thing for a Christian to wake up each morning and say to himself or herself, I want to please the Heavenly Father today. I want to please Him. He has saved me by His grace. I am secure in His love. And therefore, in response to His love, I want to please Him. I want to live in a way that brings His heavenly smile over my life. I want to live in a way that brings Him joy. That's good. The key question, of course, is how do you do that? How exactly do we live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him? Well, if you notice in verses 10 and 12, Paul tells us. The Apostle gives us four phrases that define the Christian life that pleases the Lord. Do you see them there? If you care about these things, it's four participles that tell you how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There's certainly more that we could say, but here Paul is giving us the essentials. He's giving us the essentials of the everyday Christian life that does in fact please God. So let's look at these four These four things, just briefly. Four ways in which we can live in a manner worthy of the Lord. Number one, Paul prays for fruitful obedience to God. Fruitful obedience to God. Notice verse 10 where the Apostle mentions bearing fruit in every good work. The idea here is to love God and to love your neighbor and to do so in a practical demonstration. This is why we read John 15 about bearing fruit. This is one of the reasons for our redemption in Christ. This is one of the reasons why God has saved us. As Paul himself says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, this should change how we think about acts of love that constitute the daily Christian life both in and outside the church. This should change how we think about those things. When you take a meal to a fellow believer in need, that pleases God. When you gladly serve in children's ministry, that pleases God. When you set up and tear down chairs, that pleases God. When you faithfully show up Sunday after Sunday and seek someone to encourage, that pleases God. That's incredible, friends. That's incredible. That's the fruit of the Gospel being born out in every good work. And it extends beyond the church as well. When you do your work with excellence and integrity, that pleases God. When you tell the truth with your neighbor, that pleases God. When you care for your children or an aging family member, that too pleases God. It's incredible. What I'm trying to do here is reset how we think about the everyday things of life. They may seem mundane, but they're not insignificant. They're part of how we build lives worthy of the Lord that please Him and show the world that He is worth our lives. So how how do we please Jesus? How do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? First of all, by giving ourselves to this fruitful obedience to God. That's the first way. Second way, number two, Paul prays for the continued pursuit of God. Notice the next phrase in verse 10. Verse 10 bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, that might sound a little redundant. Paul just prayed in verse 9 for God to fill them with the knowledge of His will. And now in verse 10, he prays again for increasing knowledge of God. Why the repetition? If they're going to be filled, why does it need to be increasing? Why is he repeating himself? What's the point? Well, I would say Paul is reinforcing the connection that we noted earlier, that growing in the knowledge of God leads to growth in godliness. Growing in the knowledge of God leads to growth in godliness. As Christians, there is no other source of wisdom beyond the Bible, but we do need to grow in our understanding of the Bible. We do need to go deeper in knowing God as He has revealed Himself to be. You see, that's actually what will sustain us as we seek to love God and love others. The more I see the glorious character of God, the more I will want to display that character in my daily life. It's actually one of the more astounding aspects of knowing God's Word. The more that I know God's Word, it's so power, so powerful, so profoundly powerful, that it actually changes me to reflect what it is that I'm growing to know. It transforms me so that my life begins to reflect the very God that I'm beholding in the Bible. As I see Him, I become more like Him by His grace. Think of how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? You can say it. How? By the renewing of your minds. That is telling, friends. How do you get changed? By renewing your minds to know God's Word. That's why Paul prays here in verse 10 for the increasing knowledge of God because as I behold Him, I become like Him by His grace. So please, brothers and sisters, never overlook the incredible importance of growing, increasing, in the knowledge of God through His Word, of growing and understanding the triune God. Just let me say something just really bluntly. Don't listen to folks who tell you that head knowledge isn't any good for the Christian life. Just don't listen to them. They're wrong. The Bible has no distinction between your head and your heart as though they were opposed to each other. No concept. Hearts that love and obey God flow from minds that understand and adore God. You see it? I want us to obey Him. I want us to love others. How do you get there? Having your minds transformed through the increasing knowledge of God. Never underestimate those Tuesday mornings or Thursday nights or Saturday afternoons where you open the Bible and say, God, I want to know You and You read. That's how He changes you. Number three, Paul prays for humble dependence on God. Paul prays for humble dependence on God. Notice verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Living a life that is pleasing to the Lord is a high calling. But it is challenging, isn't it? Yeah, The Christian life is taxing. And we have it on good authority when we say that. The Lord Jesus Himself said that the Christian life is like taking up your cross. They killed people on crosses. Jesus said the Christian life is like entering through a narrow gate only to find a hard road after it. That's the Christian life. You and I know this just like the Colossians knew this. In their situation, perseverance was particularly challenging. So what does Paul do? Does he tell them that it's not actually that hard? Does he tell them to just buck up and grind it out? No, he prays for God to strengthen them with His own power. The same power that God displays in the revelation of His glory be strengthened with God's own power. You see, Paul wants us to understand a truth that we often lose sight of. The truth that God grants what He commands. That's incredible good news, friends. That God grants what He commands of you. Or, we could say that God equips where He calls. Pick whichever phrase encourages you more. He grants what He commands and He equips where He calls That's encouraging to me. God calls us to live lives that honor Him. He calls us to bear fruit in every good work. He calls us to increase in the knowledge of God. And then God grants us the strength that we need to do those very things. He's a good Heavenly Father. He's a good Father. He doesn't call us to the Christian life and then say, hey, good luck figuring that out. I hope you have what it takes. No, He generously, graciously, mercifully says to us, let me give you what you need to walk worthy of My name. In fact, I love how Paul concludes verse 11. Notice how he mentions there at the end of verse 11, endurance and patience. Endurance and patience. That's precisely what the Colossians need, isn't it? They need endurance. They need strength to resist the false teachers and to persevere in the faith. And so Paul asks that God would give them not a general provision that might meet their needs, No, Paul prays for a specific provision that will precisely meet their needs. How can he pray like that? Because that's how God is. He's kind. He's generous. He meets His people with precisely what they need. He grants what He commands. So I'll just say to you, brothers and sisters, if the day in and day out of the Christian life feels like a burden to you, then there is strength to be found with the Heavenly Father. Ask Him to strengthen you. He's not stingy. He's not miserly. He's generous. And He hears us when we pray. Ask Him to give you the power that you need. And it won't be a general provision that might help you. It'll be a specific provision that will precisely help you. He's a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And one of the ways that we can honor him as a good father is by asking him to help us. That's number three. Number four, Paul prays for joyful thanksgiving to God. What's the fourth way we can walk worthy with joyful thanksgiving to God? I take the reference to joy at the end of verse 11 to go with the thanksgiving in verse 12. Verse 12. So it's not that we're enduring and patience with joy, it's that we're joyfully giving thanks. We're going to see this a number of times in the letter. This is just the first instance. But we're going to see a number of times how important Paul considers Thanksgiving to be. I don't mean the holiday. I mean the act of being thankful. How important Paul considers Thanksgiving to be. We think of Thanksgiving... Oftentimes, it's just a formality. Maybe an emotional response or an expression that we should say to someone. But Paul views thanksgiving almost like a weapon. For Paul, thanksgiving is, is a weapon in the Christian's arsenal to fight for faithfulness. By giving thanks, we, our hearts are bound to the thing for which we express that thanks. By regularly and joyfully giving thanks to God, I'm actually worshiping Him and deepening my devotion to Him. You see, Thanksgiving is formative. What you're thankful for begins to shape you and mark your character. It shapes our hearts and our minds so that we live with more devotion to God who deserves our thanks. And if we struggle to see reason to give thanks to God, Paul reminds us of this grand, unchanging reason that every Christian has to live with joyful thanksgiving. Notice the end of verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Friends, that is such sweet good news. In the Gospel, God has made His people worthy to be counted as saints and to receive His inheritance. That's what qualified means. It means to be made worthy, to be made adequate. So do you see how this ties back in with the purpose of Paul's prayer? What's the purpose of Paul's prayer? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And here at the end, how do we do that? By giving thanks to God for making us worthy. Because the Father has qualified me to receive His inheritance, I'm now free to live for God's pleasure. I'm not trying to earn my inheritance. I've already received it by grace. And therefore, I can run, I can strive, I can pursue, I can give myself to the life of seeking to please God and bring honor to His name because He's already qualified me to do so. That's good news. So let's put it all together. What is the worthy life that pleases the Lord? Here it is. Bearing fruit in good works, increasing in the knowledge of God, depending on God's power, and joyfully thanking God for the Gospel. Friends, that is the everyday Christian life. And nothing could be more significant than that. You see, that's what Paul's been driving at throughout this whole prayer. The everyday Christian life is far more significant than we tend to think. This is where the fullness of spiritual knowledge leads us. Not to some higher plane of spiritual power, but to the everyday calling of growing in godliness, loving one another, and persevering in the faith. So the next time you find yourself asking, is this really it? Stop and remember Paul's prayer. Remember there is nothing small or insignificant about perseverance and faithfulness. Remember that it pleases God to do good to others and to grow in His Word. And then tell yourself, this is it. And it's a joy to live. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us.